This is the Mathematics Education Podcast from MathEdPodcast.com. Welcome to the MathEd Podcast. I'm Kara Haynes from the University of Missouri and a guest host for this episode. With me is Teddy Chow, an assistant professor of mathematics education from The Ohio State University. Dr. Chow, thanks for taking the time to speak with us today. Hello. So recently, the Association of Mathematics Teacher Educators, or ANTE, published a book called Building Support for Scholarly Practices in Mathematics Methods. And Teddy, you were quite involved in several of the chapters in the book, but today we're going to focus on the one for which you were first author called Experiences Using Clinical Interviews in Mathematics Methods Courses to Empower Pre-Service Teachers, a conversation among three critical mathematics educators. I'm excited to hear more about it, but first I want to ask you about earlier experiences in your career, if that's okay. Sure, absolutely. Okay. So first, where did you do your graduate studies and what was the focus of your dissertation research? I did my doctorate at University of Texas in Austin. My advisor was Susan Empson, who is now here at University of Missouri. Mm -hmm. My dissertation was on mathematics teacher identity, specifically using photo voice methods to get teachers to talk about and create narratives of who they were, how they think about, and how they situate themselves as mathematics teachers. Can you say a little bit about the methods? You said photo voice methods? Yeah, yeah, it's a method that I stole from nursing research, right, Mm. sociology research, and it just involves... Um, asking participants to bring photographs, personal photographs from their own lives, and then the photographs serve as anchors in the interviews. So that, you know, I think a lot of times as educational researchers, we have these interviews in which the the power discrepancy is very apparent between the researcher and the participant. Uh, Using photo voice, the participants have these photographs, which are sort of windows into their worlds, windows Mm -hmm. into their imagined figured identities, and they can talk about them, and and they end up anchoring the stories that are elicited that the participants talk about. Mm-hmm. And just in that little bit of having this visual cue of being able to talk about things, we end up getting these stories, right, that are rich, that are nuanced, that, you know, are vulnerable and, and really connect deeper to the personal identities. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I've not heard of that before. Um, so can you say a little bit about the ways in which your research has changed or maybe evolved since then? Sure. So I still use photo voice method. I'm, I'm using a lot more in working with pre-service teachers. Um, you know, one of the classic uh, methods course uh, exercises that I think a lot of us who are math teacher educators engage in is like the math autobiography. Mm-hmm. And I've had a lot of fun using photo voice method to get teachers to reflect and use, using personal photographs to reflect on their mathematics story, how they situate themselves as mathematics students and mathematics people. And then, you know, towards the end of the semester or the end of the year, how they then create new photographs or new images obviously themselves as mathematics teachers, hmm. right? And so my the work in photo voice has sort of evolved that way in, in um, working in methods courses. And also I've, I've really used it a lot in focusing on mathematics identity teachers of color. Hmm. I think very specifically the photo voice method allows teachers of color to bring about issues from their own worlds that are different than I think the sort of mainstream normed whiteness that is prevalent in teacher education talks about things, right? And especially people who are depowered or people who see themselves as sort of different from the norm, through, through the photographs, you're able to talk about things that are deeply important to them in a somewhat safe space that only the photograph can sort of elicit. Mm-hmm. You know? yeah. Can you maybe give an example of a, a way in which a teacher might have used the photograph, and what was the photograph of, and um, how did he or she talk about it? Sure. 
So, um, in one of my pieces, and this is actually from my dissertation, and I've, and I've now published on this twice, is teachers who self-identify as Latinx, right? Mm -hmm. And so, uh, one of the teachers had an image of a mural, right, and what he called a, a, a mural celebrating Tejano culture in Texas, right? Mm -hmm. So, this sort of um, Chicana, Mexican-American culture that he wanted to celebrate deeply and was part of how he saw himself, how he situated himself, his identity, right? And so... In the middle of talking about that, he then, then said, you know, and so it totally bums me out. Actually, he used the word pisses. It pisses me off that my students don't see, see this part of me. I'm like, what do you, like, tell me more about that. Right? Mm -hmm. And then he launches into this whole aspect of his teaching in which many of the students think that he's Asian or South, South Asian. And they don't recognize that he is actually probably Tejano, mm -hmm. right? And he's like... That's so messed up, right? So he, he teaches a lot of his, you know, the honors math courses, and many of the students that he works with are ethnically white or Asian. And because there is there are these societal identities of who is and who isn't good at math, and he's been fighting them his whole life, and he's even more bummed out that now as a teacher, those sort of oppressive stereotypes of who is and who isn't uh, a mathematics person are now used by his students mm. onto him. And so this comes out like he like he got really upset and he's like he doesn't really know what to do about this right that he is proudly Tejano his whole classroom has all this stuff about Mexican American leaders and role models in his life and yet his students never seem to see him as someone who was proudly Mexican American or someone who was proudly Tejano and they kept reifying or or, or trying to figure out if he was Asian because of the stereotype of who is good at math, mm -hmm. right? And I think in these photographs, right, he's able to, to get in these complex stories of how he situates himself that, I, you know, might have been different or might have just been, like, a, you know, a, a much shorter antidote if there wasn't a photograph there to support mm -hmm. that and bring that up, right? Or he might not have talked about it at all because, yeah. the, because the photograph led to a tangential story. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thanks. That's a great example. So if you don't mind, let's now talk about AMTE's... Sure book, Building Support for Scholarly Practices and Mathematics Methods, particularly the chapter in which you and two other math teacher educators discussed clinical interviews as a means to empower pre-service teachers. Mm -hmm. uh, just so we're all on the same page, can you say a little bit about what you mean by clinical interviews? Absolutely. So um, first off, I'm really happy about this book. Right? This book is a lot of work by a lot of amazing people. And, you know, I, I was very excited to be part of this book and, and being an author on, on three of the chapters. Um, I think AMT has done a great job of putting out books that are real compendiums about what we know about math teaching and math teacher education um, in the last few years. And I think there's strong resources that I wish I had, you mm -hmm. know, as an emerging uh, math teacher educator. In, in this particular chapter, um, I wrote with uh, Stephanie Van Cross and uh, Jessica Hale. We talk about clinical interviews, and clinical interviews, I think, they go all the way back to, you know, the work of Piaget. And even before then, you know, um, Paulo Freire used them a lot in his work with Brazilian educators of really getting into these interviews of how to unpack how people think, right? Mm -hmm. I think the modern-day clinical interview is sort of comes from a lot of the work from Tom Carpenter's group in, in, in the beginnings of comedy guided instruction. How do you really elicit and, and, and unpack how a child thinks mathematically, right? And I know Herb Ginsburg has done a ton of work, right, in, in the modern clinical interview. How do you really, as an interviewer, stop yourself from jumping in and taking over a child's mathematical thinking? How do you really focus your words into listening, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think it it also pulls a lot from the work that's come out of literacy over the, over the last 20 years, right? 
a lot of work in the cognitive coaching, a lot of work by Johnston, and, and, and the very words you use are important in eliciting children's thought. So when, I, when we use the term clinical interview, what we really mean is an interview that focuses deeply on teachers learning how to listen. How do you learn to listen to children's methodical thinking? And I think for many emerging teachers, right, you know, even if we come from environments in which there's been a lot of really, really good inquiry-based mathematics teaching, the norm is still that teachers teach and students do, mm -hmm. right? And in fact, what we're trying to, to do with the clinical interview is show that, in fact, teachers do teach, but the teaching is not through uh, telling. The teaching is through listening, and teacher, the teaching is through eliciting, and teaching is through connecting. And through a clinical interview, we really practice on how to elicit the student's methodical thinking how to really put yourself in the shoes of the student, how to really situate yourself so you're trying to be inside that student's head mm -hmm. so you know how, what's going on in terms of the mathematical thinking. Mm -hmm. So what are some of the ways that you've used clinical interviews in your methods courses? Having uh, started teaching my elementary method courses under uh, Susan Epson's supervision when I was a doctoral student at the University of Texas, I basically did the clinical interviews based on her model, which was based heavily on the original cognitive guided instruction, mm -hmm. right? And I got to see how she changed the interviews, you know, based on her own thinking, her, her own emerging work specifically on uh, eliciting children's um, thinking on rational numbers. And using just a, a very simple protocol of CGI tasks, whether they're operations tasks, you know, such as join, um, separate, part part whole, or comparing tasks. And then also using some of the um, equal partitioning or equal sharing tasks that Susan does, even moving them to base 10 tasks, right? So, so for those of you who are interested in finding these tasks or finding these interviews, in fact, the TeachMath project, which is at teachmath.info, has published all of these. So mm -hmm. they're all online for free. People can download them and, and pull them up. And they're incredible resources, I think, for every math teacher educator, um, specifically those who are working in the K-5 setting. And so the way that I, I use clinical interviews is very much from that world, right? How do we really get teachers to understand and listen to children with animal thinking? And so what I've done at Ohio State is I've played with two models, one in which we have the teachers, every pre-service teacher works with a child over six weeks, and then every week they do an interview, they come together, they talk, they figure out what they're going to ask next, they figure out what they learned, and then they do another interview, right? And that's really easy when we're teaching our methods course um, on-site at an elementary school. When we're not in elementary school and the teachers are having to do the clinical interviews and their student teaching, and they're having to do sort of in, in isolation on their own, then I think, you know, doing so many interviews is actually quite difficult. So I asked them to only do three, right? And usually what, what happens is for many, many pre-service teachers, that first interview is really hard to do, right? Really hard to learn how to listen, mm -hmm. how to stop teaching, how to use wait time, how to, um, and Susan even taught me this, is how to put your pencil down, how to sometimes sit on your hands, right? So you don't end up taking over the thinking. Mm -hmm. And I think for, for a lot of pre-service teachers, that's, that's incredibly challenging. And like that first interview was a real learning opportunity of, how difficult it is to listen. And then the second interview is maybe like their, their real first shot at trying it. And then it's not until the third interview that they really have developed that rapport with the child mm -hmm. where they're listening to the mathematical thinking. And so I think in the article, um, you know, Jessica and Stephanie and I talk about the various ways that we do it in the classroom, right? In, in, in our mathematics methods course. And I've played with multiple ways. And, and I think what's most important is when this, the pre-service teachers do the interviews is that they have a chance to come back together and talk. Mm -hmm. I think that conversation that they had with their peers about how the interview went, what they learned, and what they want to do next is incredibly powerful. Mm -hmm. And that conversation, I think, is when they really start to reflect on who they are becoming as mathematics teachers. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
I'm speaking with Teddy Chow from The Ohio State University about his AMTE chapter on using clinical interviews and methods courses. So, Teddy, can you talk about some of the dilemmas or tensions related to clinical interviewing that uh, you talk about in the chapter? Absolutely. So, I think within the framework of elementary math teachers, you know, we, we sort of live in a bubble in which we, we all collectively see clinical interviews as this great practice that we engage our, our pre-service teachers in, right? That when they sit down with a child and they follow Ginsburg's method and they follow the cognitively guided instruction framework, they're going to learn about the beauty of children's developmental thinking and they're going to learn about how they themselves can position themselves as listeners mm-hmm. right, and not tellers. But I think what we learn in the chapter is maybe as teacher educators or as elementary math teacher educators, we might be living in a bubble. Right? And one of the, the, the co-authors talked about her experience and her program being handed a scripted curriculum of what, the, what her methods course needs, needed to look like, and then being told that the, the clinical interview was actually a diagnostic measure mm-hmm. of measuring and evaluating where a child was. And it was a one-shot interview that the pre-service teachers did with a child they just met in the library, and there was no conversation about how to listen, or you know what you do in response and how you take up that children listening. So she said, you know, the interview that she was told to do, or she was told to have her pre-service teachers do, was strictly diagnostic, right? It was very much within this realm of we use cognitively guided instruction to measure where our students are, and that's it. And she, in the chapter, she talks about how that was so depowering as a teacher educator, as a former uh, teacher herself, right? Like, what are we telling our pre-service teachers to do? Mm-hmm. To treat children as data points, right? And I think that that was really eye-opening for me because I think in many ways, right, in, in, in a very structuralist way of looking at education, we can sometimes get so wrapped up in measurement and data, right, and, and knowing where our children are that we lose sight of the fact that just listening to a child and learning how to listen to a child is actually what is important, right, for developing teachers. And so the big tension is, these tools, right, such as the cognitive guided instruction clinical interview, which for me has been such a space for reflection and talking with teachers, can also be used in this way to make math, uh, emerging math teachers, respective math teachers, feel like math is prescriptive, right? And I was like, wow, you can use this tool in such a horrific way, yeah. <laughs> right? That's a huge problem, right? I think that's a major dilemma within our field is that some of these tools that we develop, like these tools... We think they're great, and we think that we can interpret them in, in equitable ways of teaching. But you know, in the hands of other people who have different philosophies about education and about math learning, they can be used as tools to destroy student thinking. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you really make the point about not taking these tools for granted as as something good. Yeah. 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 And also, I think always being critical of the way people are using them. Right. right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I thought was interesting about the chapter is that you actually include conversation among the co-authors. So what do you think you personally gained from including those conversations that would have been missed without them? You know, one of the, the issues, I think, in academic writing, right, <laughs> is we end up sort of writing in these tones, you know, especially when you collaborate on writing, where the conversations you have with your co-authors are so rich, and when you sit down and write them, it comes out as, you know, frankly, kind of boring, right? mm-hmm. as if, you know, all these thoughts were well articulated and, and there, there's no conflict among, among the authors, right? And so what Stephanie, Jessica, and I really try to do is capture the conversations in ways that are real, right? And, and Kara, you mentioned one of the things in the article is we include notes about body language 
that might not be apparent in the written word, such mm-hmm. as you know when we're emphatically saying something, or when we're wiping away tears, or when you know like how difficult it is to talk about these things to each other. And we wanted to really uh, give the readers an insight into this is a real conversation that we're having. These are real struggles that we're dealing with. And we don't want to wrap it up in sort of fancy um, academic language or put it into prose that sort of takes away from the humanity and the immediacy of it. And, and frankly, I thought, you know, I think initially we thought if we did it in a conversation, it would be easier to write. Mm-hmm. It actually be, be, ended up being much harder right? yeah. <laughs> than, than the traditional way of, of sort of writing and collectively working on prose. You know, we ended up like recording it, uh, transcribing it, then, you know, going through whittling down exactly what we want to do, making sure all the body language cues are there, and then, you know, going through it meticulously to make sure that the points of what we're trying to say are there, but it also fits within the flow of an actual dialogue, mm-hmm. right? You know, I think it's an experiment also on our part of like, you know, how, like what can an article look like, right? That can be sort of collaborative and can invite um, other teacher educators into this space this, to be part of our conversation. Um, and so now that the book is out, we'll see how, yeah. how it's taken out, right? Yeah. So from this chapter, what what is the big idea that you hope other methods instructors will take away? I think I think there's a number of things, right? Mm-hmm. There's a number of things that, and, and Stephanie and Jessica and I wrote this article, we wanted to really unpack in terms of the clinical interview, right? One is to not take these tools for granted. Like we talked about, there's a lot of dilemmas. There's a lot of tensions in how a tool that we see as emancipatory, a tool that we see as leading to really, really great pedagogy and teacher education can be misused, right? And and, and I don't want to say that those are particularly to specific fields, right? But I think even some very well-meaning people, some well-meaning teacher educators can sometimes see the tools that we use and see the frameworks that we use and interpret them in their own ways, Mm -hmm. interpret them differently. And we need to at least have these conversations, right? Mm -hmm. Jessica revealed that this was her experience with the CGI clinical interview, I was shocked because I was like, you know, I've been part of the CGI world for a while. I interact with CGI teachers all the time, right? I constantly post selfies of me and Tom Carpenter on Facebook. <laughs> but like, you know, I feel like I'm part of this network. And then realizing that I am privileged, right? Because I, I'm close to the original authors of this work, I have seen it only in the way that they imagine it and the people close to them use it. But then also, you know, realizing that, as, you know, maybe one or two steps removed, where people are not part of the CGI framework or not part of the CGI work, maybe not even associated with that, that, that work, but they're using the tools in their own way, these tools can be extremely dangerous. And that, I think, was a huge takeaway. Mm-hmm. That, right? And I think it's not just clinical interviews. I think it's any tools that we use, whether it's the math autobiography, whether it's the placements, whether it's projects. You know, Sometimes we have to be careful about whether or not we're reifying or getting our students to adopt deficit language or deficit approaches to thinking in something that we're trying very hard to use to to attack that or to confront that. Right. Yeah. So in addition to using the clinical interviews to understand students' thinking, mm-hmm. are there other ways that pre-service teachers might use them to empower students and themselves? Mm-hmm. Did you describe that a bit in the chapter about different ways to use them? I think so. I mean, this is the, the, the cool part of the, the, the chapter being very much a conversation. Right. Is we got to really think outside the box. Um, in ways that might not fit into a traditional discussion section. Mm-hmm. Right? And sort of just think and, and build, off each, build off of each other's ideas. I, I think the clinical interview is just another structure, right? It's just another tool that we can use. And I think all of us have done it in a different flavor. And of course, I, you know, since we've written the chapter like a year ago, like I've changed in the way that I do it, right? Mm-hmm. I heavily emphasize the use of video now, um, where I have my pre-service teachers use video 
and actually give the iPads or the phones directly to the child to make the video themselves so that the clinical interview ends with this short video piece, this evidence of the student's mathematical thinking, and then that piece ends up coming into the classroom for us to discuss and talk about, right? So there's an artifact that we can then base our thinking around, right? And I think that what I've learned in that is when you have that artifact, the ability for teachers to reflect on and listen to children's mathematical thinking is so much more rich because in the moment of a clinical interview, especially for a brand new pre-service teacher, they, there's five million things they're worrying about, mm-hmm. right? And the last thing they're sometimes thinking about is like, let let me like, how can I deeply unpack and understand this child's mathematical thinking? Right, <laughs> right, yeah. And but that's where we want them to be. But mm-hmm. I think uh, uh, building tools and affordances so that they can do that, maybe the day later or the next, you know, the next few days, and doing that sort of in a way that doesn't seem intimidating mm-hmm. is really important. Yeah, right? sure. Yeah, I've also had a lot of fun. And this is directly from the uh, Teach Math work, and talking to Julia Aguirre, who does a lot of this work of connecting the community. Um, the clinical interview should lead to a conversation, and at the very least, a report that the pre-service teachers write to the child's family mm. about, this is the mathematics that your child is doing, this is the mathematics that I see is important, and then using a lot of the visuals from the video or, or photos from the interview, and really not focusing not on on deficit language or what the child cannot do, but on celebrating the mathematical thinking the child can do. Yeah. Right. And I think in the writing of these of these letters, right, in the writing of these notes, um, I've just anecdotally, when the teachers get them and, and you know, and like these are the letters that our pre-service teachers wrote and therefore the parents, right? Or when the pre-service teachers are able to meet a parent, you know, during a, a pickup or a drop off and just hand them this, this this little report they wrote, I think it's an incredible experience to show them the power of Spending the time to get to know a child's methodical thinking, sure. and then celebrating that with the parent yeah. right, or with the family, right? And I think that's something that it's easy to forget, right? That when we're working with the child, we're working with the child's whole community and family, right? And sort of pushing against this diagnostic approach of any of the tools we use, right? And instead of saying that they're they're there for us to connect to the community, mm-hmm. I think it's important. Yeah. What did, what were the uh, reactions of the parents like and? It's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. And and I think most importantly, uh, uh, the teachers, like so so last semester I had my pre-service teachers do this. And then so then we get, they gave the letters to the teachers and the teachers distributed them to the parents. And the teachers said as they looked through them, they kept copies for themselves. They were like, these are incredible, right? Because as a full-time teacher, it's rare for you to get so deep into child methodical thinking and have the time to write an individual two to three page report mm-hmm. for the parent. But having the pre-service teacher do that because of the time they spent with the child, showing the child's progression over the course of interviews and really celebrating the child's knowledge of what they taught the pre-service teacher, I think is empowering for the family as well, right? Because then they see, oh, like there's all this great stuff that my child is doing at school, right? Or even if it's um, not something that they're uh, uh, attending to in terms of mathematical thinking, it's like, oh, like I get to see like a little window into my child's thinking what they're doing at school. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So final question, uh, stepping outside of research for a moment, mm-hmm. if you were not in mathematics education as a career, mm-hmm. what can you imagine yourself doing instead? Yeah, that's a question I think about almost every day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so, Kara, I was sharing with you something that Watch Us Group shared with me. It's the hot tub test. Mm. If you sit in a hot tub and you let all your stresses go, where does your mind wander to, right? And I, I remember as a doctoral student, I would laugh. I'm like, 
Really, Walter? When you get in the hot tub and you're relaxed, you start thinking about how kids learn math? That's what you think about? <laughs> really? And he's like, well, not immediately, right? But eventually my mind goes there, right? And I had this great conversation with uh, one of your professors, um, Chuck uh, Muncher, last night. And he talked about how he's become an expert in one thing. In the 12 years he's worked in mathematics education, he knows so much about it that it, like everything else he knows about pales in comparison, such as the music he makes and all these other things he dabbles in. Like he, he, he's a fan of those things, right? They're hobbies, but his expertise is in mathematics education. Mm -hmm. And so I think this question is difficult. It's like, it's, what would I be doing other than math education? I don't know, right? Because we've devoted so much of our mental energy to this, and it's hard not to think of a world in which you know, I'm somewhat involved in education, right? Mm -hmm. um, whether it's math education or not, like I, I would immediately say, like I, I'm constantly feeling nostalgic about my time in the classroom, mm -hmm. you know, about teaching and working with children, right? I would say as a doctoral student, I miss it tremendously. And, you know, even as a professor now, like, you know, working with undergraduate students and working with masters and, and doctoral students is, is fun, but it's very different than the day-to-day -day of working with a group of middle schoolers, right? mm -hmm. a group of elementary school students, right? You know, you get to be part of their life. You get to know them deeply on a, on a daily basis. And I, I would say, I, I, I think about the alternative world in which I was still in the classroom a lot, mm -hmm. right? I think that's all nostalgic, right? Because I see what teachers are going through and what it's like to teach in 2017. I'm like, oh, yeah, so it sucks, right? Like, <laughs> like a lot of what you have to do as a teacher today in, in the United States is actually really uh, demoralizing and demeaning, right? You know, it's sort of these rose-tinted glasses. I, I imagine it's fun, but in actuality, working with teachers, I'm like, wow, what they have to put up with, the demoralization of the profession, right? The, the focus, the heavy focus on testing and accountability, right? It's tough. Mm -hmm. I think it's really tough. And so I think, no, I don't know why I'd be a teacher, right? The other thing I, I think a lot about is, um, so my undergraduate degree is, I, have a double, I was a double major. I was um, computer science engineering and film and media studies. And there's a part of me that would that always imagines like what would it have been like if I had stayed in computer science or in film mm -hmm. or you know and I at the time when I was an undergrad I thought I would work like you know making movies or making digital movies or working in computer graphics you know yeah what would it have been like if I was like you know working at an interactive firm working in video games or working um, you know like many of my my friends from undergrad who are now rich <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, you know, I remember like seeing on Facebook the other day, I have like two or three friends from undergrad who now drive Teslas. <laughs> I'm like, huh, I have a PhD and I'm not close to ever getting a Tesla. <laughs> These guys work in video games and that's what they drive, right? Yeah. So I, I think nostalgically about, you know, the revolution that's happening in, in Silicon Valley, the, the technology revolution that's happening across the world and the way that we communicate. I think they really are changing the world and, and through communications, through understanding uh, human interfaces with technology, understanding how we as a people can communicate more effectively. I think the world is, is we're in the midst of amazing revolution. And I would, there's a part of me that feels like I'm a part of it, right? But um, maybe if I weren't in a, a research space as math education, maybe I would be a deeper part of what's happening in Silicon Valley, um, a, a more major part of some of the innovations that are happening there. And there's a part of me that's like, that would be awesome. But then at the same time, I think the, the opportunity to be super critical, especially like from a critical race perspective, mm -hmm. to be really analytical about sort of the, the issues of power and privilege within the world of technology are things that 
people in that field don't necessarily have the platforms they do, right? Where that's something that we in academia are for. Like we can critique and talk and break things apart and, you know, convince our doctoral students that we're right, you know? Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? um, and so it's a give and take, right? I, I, I think a lot like, yeah, what would it be like if I worked in media? What would it be like if I worked in tech still? Mm-hmm. But then I'm like, would I still be as critical or would I actually be part of the problem? Mm-hmm. Like, would I be part of this sort of male-dominated world of, yeah. you know, focusing on how technology can make people more rich, right? I yeah. It's interesting to think about that. Like, now that you know what you know from this world, mm-hmm. how you can be critical of another that people in it aren't even aware of. I think that's really interesting yeah. related to those two things. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here and yeah. talking with me. This is fun. Thanks.